As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is the middle of June. We are talking Canucks, Farhan Lalji, and Harman Dahl with the latest edition of the Van Cast. And yeah, we're going to slow down a little bit in the summer, but we've got some, you know, some hot times, some hot points coming because we know the draft isn't too far away. We know free agency isn't too far away. And Harm just spent the bulk of a week in Buffalo at the NHL Combine getting ready for the NHL draft. So Harm, let's start there, my friend. First of all, do you have any good Buffalo wings? I'm actually not a wings guy, so I um, I instead... Hang on, you're not a wings guy? Let's start this podcast again. Oh my That's goodness. That's not acceptable. Well, Because usually the question is, what kind of wings would you like? I don't mind wings. They're not bad, but... I prefer other types of chicken. Like, give me a good. You, you know, you know what? When the, when, when the waiter asks you bone in or bone out, you basically say, "Yeah, I'll have the chicken nuggets." Okay, I, I don't go that far, but I mean, I'm I'm basic in that sense. Always always going with with the burgers, and yeah, I think we went to a spot that was renowned for their wings, and I definitely got some. Oh, you're not grabbing wings; you're gonna grab a burger. Um, looks at the table when oh. uh, when we ordered but honestly the the burger that I got from that place I, I don't know what exactly what, you know the sauce was or whatever but one of the best burgers I've had so do not regret that decision at all might have been buffalo sauce on the burger but listen before we get too deep into the weeds on your menu we should let everybody know that this is a mailbag edition and we had wanted to do this before but we were a little bit late in promoting it because we were away that whole weekend so we wanted to make sure we gave the vips every opportunity also we do want to apologize for not having john garrett on with us last week uh, we hope to get him on at some point. That was kind of something that was beyond his control, beyond our control. So we are going to, we'll try to make that happen. But we did want to get our VIP questions in as soon as possible because I know that everyone's interested in what's going on. But before we get to the questions, 
let's uh, let's get your assessment because we I know that uh, you had a chance to to write a piece on what you saw at the combine, but also what the Canucks are most interested in. And their names have been tied to, I'm going to throw three players out there and you can expand on that uh, about what they look like, but also others that they may be tied to. Uh, Tom Willander, the defenseman, Nate Danielson, a center, and Cody Barlow, a gritty winger, are players the Canucks took out for dinners all last week in Buffalo. And that's generally an indication of interest, right? Well, they want to get to know you that well. Uh, the Canucks aren't going to take everybody out, right? I, you know, who knows if they took out Connor Bedard? Highly unlikely because they're not going to get up there. But, um, you know, this is, this is standard practice in any league and they all have combines now, uh, just to, to get to know each other and, and get a sense of what they're all about. And they'll probably dig in later on the names they're most interested in in their window but why don't we start there the Canucks interest in those three players and what they're about yeah so right off the bat it's uh it's a group of three players that considering the Canucks's needs you can understand why they sort of lean in lean in that type of uh direction right off right off the bat with Willander he's sort of been one of the biggest risers in this draft class especially after a strong second half a tremendous U18 tournament for uh for Sweden to where he's picking up a lot of steam and especially when you consider this is a player that is six foot one has that type of above average size is an excellent skater so he has a lot of utility as a puck mover but on top of that he also possesses a hardness and nastiness to his defensive game he can make a lot of stops in his own end and has those two-way elements I mean it's hard to find guys right shot d that have that size, have that skating, have that defensive ability. So you can understand why he's a coveted player, uh, especially for a team like the Canucks that has, you know, a need at that position. And when you consider his stylistic makeup, especially in contrast to Axel Sandin Pelica, who, uh, by the way, did not have any meeting or, or contact with the Canucks beyond the standard 20 minute combine air, I- interview. You can all of a sudden sense why he, you know, Willander might jump ahead of Sandin Pelica on the Canucks' internal list, and for a lot of teams uh, as as well because of the rarity of that skill set. You look at Sandin Pelica in contrast, and he's undersized. He is a purely offensive talent, a, a guy that many teams look at as a future power play quarterback. So even coming into this week, I'd been thinking that you know, in my mind, if the Canucks are insistent on taking, let's say right shot defenseman that could Willander be that guy instead of Sandin Pelica, despite Sandin Pelica for most of the season being the more prominent name. And that's, you know, definitely the sense that I get coming out of uh, this week. Um, so, you know, that, that right shot dynamic with those two guys right off the bat is, um, is, is a fascinating takeaway. Yeah, Harmon, with Sandin Pelica, you know, you just have to look at how difficult it's been for a player like Jack Rathbone to get integrated into the Canuck lineup and say what you want about his ability and readiness, but he is seen as this offensive, undersized defenseman. And guess what? The Canucks have one of those. And so, you know, do you see him as a third pair guy? You know, you, you the Canucks are going to want somebody, two other defensemen on the left side that can consistently kill penalties, that have a little bit of a different type of physical makeup to their game than what Quinn Hughes does. And that's going to make it, it's made it hard for Rathbone and it's going to make it hard for a guy like Sandin Pelica. So you can almost see what they're thinking with a player like Tom Olander and, and how that might fit. And I understand that Sandin Pelica is on the right side. I, I get that, but just, uh, you know, in terms of what you want in, in, in physicality for defensemen. Uh, absolutely. You sort of nail it there. And that's, you know, why 
even when you sort of get onto you know a name like Danielson, the the one thing you know who's obviously a center, the the one thing that sort of sticks out in this process is it seems as if the Canucks are mindful of their existing personnel are mindful of some of their positional needs both short term and long term as they're kind of making these um you know m- making these considerations for who to take right because whether it's Willander whether it's Danielson these are guys that for most of the year most um most we're looking at as more you know mid potentially second half first round names and both both guys have sort of picked up steam recently but still at, at number 11 you could argue that on talent, on upside, that number 11 could be a little bit rich, right? You look at, you know, Willander, he's definitely, on the one hand, if he hits, he's that rare type of player that's hard to find. But on the other hand, he doesn't have much in the way of, of creativity with the puck. Um, his numbers were pretty pedestrian in the in the J20 league. And, um, and upside-wise, this isn't a guy that, people are talking about as a player with, you know, top pair upside, for example, necessarily on true talent level. It's like, if this guy hits, he's probably going to uh, top out as a, as a number three, number three. And even in the lead up to the, the sort of you know, draft process, when Drance and I spoke to scouts around the league, a lot of them mentioned that this might not be the best year to sort of prioritize trying to add a lot of defense talent, just because this is a forward heavy class. And a lot of the, the, the defensemen, sure, they'll end up going higher than they're sort of initially slotted because teams always have the need for a defenseman. But that compared to, let's say, next year's crop, that it isn't as um, as strong of, of, of a group. So that's where it's going to be really fascinating to see because one one other sort of takeaway that, that I had was I was looking back at the Canucks' um, drafting track record. And it's been five years since they took a defenseman or a center in the first two rounds, right? Not just the first round, even in the second round, because you had Quinn Hughes in 2018. Since then, it's been Pod Colson and Hoaglander, Klimovich, and then Lakaramaki. So I wonder how much management is looking at uh, looking at that factor and going at number 11, how much does positional need uh, weigh in, despite them publicly saying, you know, we're, we're going to prioritize best player available, because guess what? Every team's going to say we're we're taking BPA. Whether they actually follow through on that with their actions is uh, is sometimes a different matter. And you look at a player like Danielson at center. Um, there are some that question his upside. He's one of the oldest players in the draft, and you know, has he got enough there offensively to be a guy they should be considering at eleven? I'm not entirely convinced personally. He's definitely polarizing because some look at him, and it's like if you believe he has enough offensive upside to sort of hang in the top six, then you combine that with, you know, his size, his speed. He's got a very projectable sort of NHL frame. The floor on him is, is, is really high in that sense. And you consider the defensive upside. It's like, that could be one heck of a player to, to have in your lineup. But on the other hand, it's like, do you want a guy that may only top out as a, as a third line center if he hits when you're drafting um, number 11 and one, which a lot of people said about Bo Horvat. That's true. But Horvat's typically an exception. And this guy's a better skater coming out of junior. True. But that's typically like Horvat's case is typically an exception, right? A lot. How many? Yeah, fair enough. There are a lot of examples of situations where you have, let's say like a Brendan, Brendan Gauntz, right? Where, you know, teams look at that, teams look at a player like that and go, he's great defensively, has all these, you know, intangibles, 
Um, and, you know, he's got a really high floor. He's going to play in the NHL, but we don't know if he necessarily has the highest upside. And, you know, typically if you go back, a lot of these, you know, high floor, lower ceiling type names sometimes don't hit, right? And yeah, of course, there are situations like Bo. I think in the case of Horvat, the, the reason why he was able to, to outperform what people projected him as during his draft year is because Bo in his draft year was a really poor skater. And obviously that's an element where when he actually developed and hit the NHL, it went from one of the weaknesses of his game to one of the strengths. So, you know, with a player like Danielson, you'd have to hope that there's untapped offensive upside that maybe some people aren't, um, aren't seeing right now. The, the, the thing that, um, you know, will come up as we discuss Willander and, and Danielson is some fans will say, okay, if you're interested in those guys, trade down, right? Take, trade down and take them. The problem is with Willander and Danielson, they fit the type of profile that teams typically tend to overdraft. Like I don't, you know, a player like Willander, I, if you trade down from eleven, I don't, I don't know if he's if he's going to be avail- if he's going to be available at you know let's say fifteen or something, right? Same thing with Danielson. Scouts sort of love players that project in that type of mature two way style game, especially as a centerman. So. Again, if you're trading down, there's no guarantee you're going to get the guy. And that's what makes number 11 so intriguing from the Canucks' perspective. Now, I know we wanted to get into, uh, we wanted to get into a few other prospects, but I, I, I want to get to the mailbag just because we've had so many um, responses from our VIPs. And I know we're going to go about 35 minutes today, so we want to make sure we get a chance to get these guys in here. So uh, let us, let's start right here with uh, Craig Dixon who asks, with Bears injury and potential surgery, can the Canucks afford slash risk to qualify? It's a great question because I think it was a slam dunk. They wanted to protect that asset and move forward with him. But with the injury, uh, do you have to second guess that decision? It depends on the timeline, right? If this is a case of you're only anticipating him to miss, if, you know, two, three weeks at the start of the season, something along those lines, I don't think it does, especially because look at the Canucks' right side. What do you have beyond Tyler Myers if you walk away from Ethan Bear? It's it's not a nice list, especially in a year where the UFA market is um, is pretty weak and teams obviously aren't chomping at the bit to trade right shot defensemen. So, just from that perspective, I would be surprised, you know, if it changes too much in terms of the Canucks' approach with um, you know with Bear. Maybe maybe it changes in the sense of your more conservative from the Canucks standpoint in terms of maybe you only want to approach it from a one-year deal sort of um, standpoint, but it is fascinating in terms of how it could throw a wrench into their, you know, top four plans, at least for the start of the season, right? Because we know the Canucks have fallen flat out of the gate two years in a row. You look at Bear and the impact that, you know, he sort of had this past season. We all know that in a perfect ideal world, he'd probably be a bottom pair defenseman, but on this Canucks team, given their lack of cap space and, you know, the lack of talent out there, he's, you know, one of the leading contenders to sort of play stop gap top for a minute, whether it's with Quinn Hughes or, or on a pair even with, um, on the second one, if Oliver Ekman Larson is still around and you're looking, for, you know, to, to have a right shot puck mover to, you know, help out his, um, his mobility. So you remove him from the equation and all of a sudden you're looking pretty thin and it's, um, you know, it, uh, Maybe it uh, it affects it it affects um your preference of handedness when you go out and shop for uh, shop for names, especially because just in general, 
there's also a possibility that, you know, even outside of the injury, if Bear had come in this season and he, you know, for whatever reason, wasn't able to sort of stick and excel in a top four role, you, you know, we, we would want to have a you know plan B in mind for who else you would sort of plug into that situation. So I'm curious if it'll affect, um, you know, not necessarily the Bear decision, but whether they look at as they're trying to shop for a defenseman, if they can clear up some cap space, whether they're looking at um, right shot guys in, in terms of a plan B or plan C. In addition, though, you know, there's been some debate about what the bear contract would look like, right? And I think the Canucks would want to get to a, a three-year deal, but they were talking also about a one-year deal. And you'd think the injury would have a greater impact on that length of potential deal. Yeah, I mean, you sort of had your, had your risk, you protect it. And for, for me, if you're the Canucks, uh, you know, I wouldn't be opposed to one-year deal, right? Show your value, especially because, again, Bears in an awkward sort of spot because he's a solid defenseman, but he's not, hasn't yet proven himself to be a bona fide top four guy. Now, the Canucks think that there's still some untapped upside there, but what you have to be careful of is, let's say, on a three-year deal, you commit north of $2 million. What you don't want happening is over the you know next season to sort of realize that, all right, yeah, this guy isn't really capable of even in a stopgap role playing in our top four, in which case we're stuck with this contract, um, you know, a bottom pair guy making north of two million for multiple years beyond next season. So that's why for for me anyway, I, I honestly um, am not against the idea of uh, at all of, of the Canucks sort of, of of them trying to approach it with a one year deal in mind. All right, next up, CEO of Lids asks, does the Garland with retention for LAF, meaning Lafreniere, actually have traction or does that make too little sense for the Rangers? Also, what's the trade value of Garland or Besser if Vancouver retains 50% on the remaining cap hit? Yeah, so look, if if this obviously, this question stems from, um, you know, our, our Rangers um, colleague over at The Athletic, Arthur uh, Staples, who wrote um, wrote about Canuck, or Rangers offseason potential targets, and he had mentioned Garland and threw around, okay, if the Canucks retain um, some on him, you know, could they be enticed by a deal potentially inf- involving Lafreniere? I'll say this right off the bat. If any proposal along those lines is on the table, you you take it in a heartbeat if you're the Canucks, right? Like that that would be mm-hmm. a, a massive, a massive, massive win. And to be honest, I... I'd be surprised if the Rangers seriously considered that because you look at um, their their own cap situation with the contracts they have coming up, not only this summer but uh, but the year after, and the and and how much big money they have tied up into their stars. Right, Panarin has the second highest cap hit in the NHL. Uh, Truba makes eight million. Uh, Fox makes I think north of uh, north of nine. Kreider's uh, six six five. Uh, Zabanejad's eight five. Like they need cheap young talent, and with Lafreniere, his contract situation, especially coming off of an underwhelming season, he's going to be cost controllable, and he's young. Like they need cheap guys that can sort of contribute in that sort of way. So, I mean, if I was the Rangers, I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want to do that deal, um, considering how much more expensive. Garland uh, Garland would be and and I know there's obviously been a lot of talk about Lafreniere oh he's a bust and and whatnot but I honestly think if you put him in a role where you give him more opportunity he I think he, I legitimately believe he'd break out this is a guy who had 39 points this past season but the year before 
as well as a 20-year-old had 19 goals, nearly all of them. I think it was 18 of the 19 came at even strength in a third-line role, right? He's been stuck on the left wing behind Panarin and um, and Kreider. And if you just give him top six minutes, I, I honestly would not be surprised if he's immediately a 50-55 point um point player barely gets power play time as well and you also keep in mind yeah he's been in the league for three years now but he's still only 21 and you think about the trajectory even of a player like jt miller right miller at 21 was um you know he was bouncing up between the nhl and the ahl he hadn't even been close to establishing himself as uh, a top nine uh forward so lafreniere he might not have star level upside that he once did once he was drafted number one overall but um you know, he's uh, he's still, you know, compared to Garland, he'd be younger, higher upside, cheaper. So, you know, for me, I'm not getting my hopes up about a possibility like that uh, being on the table. But if it ever does come across the table, you do it in a heartbeat. And to the second half of the question about, you know, Besser or Garland, their trade value, if the Canucks retain 50%, I, I don't think the Canucks are going to be willing to retain 50%. So, um you know, I think if anything, it'd be... They can't. The whole point of the exercise is to clear cap space. They can't keep 50% on those, because especially Garland, given the amount of term left on his deal. Yeah, so like you said, it's a term left on the deal especially, so that's not a realistic sort of um, possibility. Uh, one more quick one before we go to break. Uh, why hasn't Beauvillier been named... Or why hasn't his name been discussed for creating cap space? Seems like such an obvious move from Canucks Talk Media. Yeah, so... I can understand the appeal of having Pavilion lower on the totem pole compared to, let's say, a player like Connor Garland in terms of potential contracts that you sh- that you sort of ship out because Beauvillier is in a contract year, right? And what you'll know about players in contract years is they're so incentivized to play for their next deal, um, you know, regardless of if, it, of if it's you know with their with you know with the Canucks or, or another team that. We saw with Bo Horvat too, right? Like these guys just just show up in contract years. Um, you know, Nassim Kadri going off for eighty-seven points when he's in seventy-one games when he's never been that caliber player. When he's typically been like a fifty-point guy, uh, you think of Philip Forsberg going off as a forty. I think he had a forty-two goal campaign ahead his ahead of his UFA year last year. So right off the bat, when you have a guy in a contract year. You know, you typically want that sort of guy on your roster because he has a lot to play for on a personal level. And also the other side of the argument would be, okay, if there's a scenario where the Canucks, let's say, you know, struggle and end up sellers at the deadline, well, Bovillier, if you retain on him at the deadline as a rental, like that's a legitimate trade chip that would have value. Whereas obviously Besser or Garland at the deadline, they would not have that type of value, value. So I think that would be the reason why he hasn't you know, come up as often in terms of naming, um, you know, contracts uh, Canucks could sort of uh, ship out. The Alexander Mogilny syndrome, show up at the, show up in your contract. And, I, and you know, and from Horvat's perspective, certainly it was the case from a goal scoring perspective, but I think he's pretty much been this guy just in terms of consistency and approach and level and all of that beforehand, but certainly the way he was scoring before the trade was huge. And you're right. I mean, look, this guy has got some chemistry with Pedersen. Right. Like you, you know, I could certainly see a scenario where he gets rolled out there again with Pedersen and Kuzmenko. And, and if he does, that's going to inflate his value. And yeah, because he's got the one year left on, on the deal, if you're going to move him, in my opinion, it makes the most sense to move him at the deadline. Uh, you know, regardless of what kind of circumstance the club is in at that point, because if he outperforms that deal and it all of a sudden thinks he's worth six million dollars, the Canucks aren't going to pay that. But 
you can, you, regardless of the situation, they're, they're not going to pay it. They're either going to run him to the end of the season or they're just going to move on and, and cut bait there. And that's where he's going to be the most valuable. Um, let's uh, take a quick break. When we come back, we've got a bunch of other questions here. When, when the VIPs get a chance to get to the boy genius, they jump at it. Uh, we'll be back with uh, more of your questions when the VanCast continues. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Just a reminder, my appearance in the VanCast has been powered by my good friends at Key West Ford in New Westminster. So next one up, uh, and I guess we probably could have asked this first based on our draft conversation, Rank these three draft-eligible defensemen who you'd want the Canucks to pick from most to least. Simishev, uh, Axel Sandin-Pelika, and Willander from Phil. Yeah, I think Simishev stands out to me as um, as the first guy just because, look, if you removed the the Russian factor in terms of, you know, the geopolitical risk and, and all of those things, I, I seriously think that he'd be a guy getting legit top five, top six pick um, – consideration right because this is a six foot four behemoth of uh of a defenseman who skates really well can move the puck defends hard and um and has been really effective over uh over in, in russia and i think there's a higher upside there in terms of uh what he could be relative to let's say willander i know he's a, a left shot um so you know but truly though what's the best case scenario and when they're going to see him like i mean i've heard they could be waiting years I think his KHL contract's two years. Yeah, and I, and I guess you, you, we can suppose that situations are going to stabilize before then. I don't know that they'd have a lot of luck buying him up, but that's a long time to wait for a player at that pick. Is, is it though? Not? Because a lot of times it takes if you defend if you draft a guy a, a defenseman eleventh overall. A lot of times it can take two years for him to become NHL ready. Anyway, um, now realistically, do I think the Canucks will you know consider Simishev if if he's there? I wouldn't bet on them being patient on a Russian guy. I don't think they'll go in that direction. I just think that on talent, he's the second best defenseman in this draft class after Ryan Backer. And, um, you know, I wouldn't be as wary of uh, of the risk. It's not like a Mitchkov thing where you're worried about him coming over, um, period, right? And, it, you know, his contract is certainly a year shorter than Mitchkov's. I think there's less risk there compared to, um, you know, Mitchkov when you consider the whole Russian factor. So, um, you know, I, I'd have him, then, I ha- then I'd have Willander, and then I'd have uh, Sandin Pelica. All right, next up from Chester Ming. Uh, do you think it's possible for Tyler Myers to play over 18 minutes a game for the Canucks and for them to subsequently make the playoffs? How many minutes do you think per night would give them the best chance to win? My personal thinking, looking at his numbers last year and his age, is zero. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, if he's playing at the level that he was this past season, 
which, I mean, it truly was a train wreck year for both him and OEL. If he's playing more than 18 minutes a night, man, I, I'd be really, really, really surprised if the, you mean the World make, Championships make didn't convince you otherwise. <laughs> no, fortunately not. Um, uh, okay. Yeah, I just think that in an ideal world, if he's still back, you can, you know, hopefully shelter him in, uh, in a role where he's playing, you know, 16, 17 minutes. Honestly, it's not even the, the number of minutes so much as it is the quality of the matchups because the last two years, the Canucks have typically had to use him because they don't deploy the, the Quinn Hughes pair necessarily against the opposition's best players. You know, they've leaned on OEL and Myers to do that. And that's uh, that's typically been a recipe for disaster. So for me, it's not actually the the minutes load so much as it is you got to stop playing the guy against the opposition's best players. You said if. What's the likelihood in your mind that uh, they can find a solution there? That's one I've been thinking a lot about just because the bonus situation complicates things, right? It's been, you know, suspected that his um, – his uh, signing bonus is paid out September 15th. And after that, he's obviously owed only $1 million in real cash. So it's a type of contract where if you're in Arizona, you're in Chicago, you're probably a lot more uh, enticed around taking that contract on after mid-September. But the problem is if you're the Canucks and you're trying to shed that contract time for mid-September, what are you going to do with the cap space? You're not, you, you you don't have all of a sudden the opportunity to go trade for guys in a robust free agent market. And so that makes me wonder what would be the cost to get off of it um, beforehand? Could the Canucks be open to retaining it? When, when an agent, when, when Pat Morris is negotiating that contract, like don't make any mistake. That's not a coincidence that the signing bonus is late in the summer instead of being July 1st. That's, that's intentional. So that contract is harder to uh, harder to move. So, yeah, and in some cases you want it earlier. So if you're going to get moved, you want some clarity to it, right? And like in other sports, that's how many of those time, many of the timing on those types of bonuses get set, so that it just forces a team's hand earlier. Yeah. So the thing is, so you know, the thing is, like at the end of the day, if you're let's say a re- rebuilding team, especially like I could see why you know if I'm Arizona and I only have to pay you know one million in cash, and this contract helps me get to the cap floor. Especially because Myers is a rental, all of a sudden I could be like, okay, I'll take this guy on. Um, you might pay me a slight, slight sweetener. Um, and, you know, if I can rebuild his value, then I retain on him at the deadline. I could ship him for a rental, right? Shot D with size. If he even has some level of a bounce back, um, you know, that could have, you know, significant um, value. So it's just this weird spot to be in for the Canucks. And it's honestly, honestly a situation that I don't have a great read on in terms of the feasibility of uh, of moving it out or, or what the Canucks are, are thinking. A uh, connected question from Danuk. Do the Canucks have any legitimate ways to get out of this cap situation? And more so, can we make moves, any moves to fundamentally change our ability to create enough cap space and add some real good players? Yeah, I mean, I think they'll be able to move money. The question I have is, that if, is if they'll actually find a way to be significantly better after the reshuffling, right? Because the contracts that are probably, you know, uh, unless it's a Myers, right? You're talking about a, a player like a Garland or, or a Besser. And in those cases, right, like you have Frank Cervalli reporting that teams have been asking the Canucks to toss in a sweetener for Garland or whatnot. And let's say you can even get off of like a, a Connor Garland, right? If you're essentially going to be giving the guy up for, for free, you're going to be getting a, a very minimal return back. And 
those players, in, in the case of Garland and Besser, they're a bit overpaid, yes, but they're still genuinely good players that you'd be peeling off your roster. So my fear would be if, let's say, you give up one of those guys for free and then because of a weak free agent market, you know, you end up targeting the wrong third line center or defender and and, and sign or trade for a guy that's, you know, on, on, a, on a contract that's also inefficient, right? Because at that point, you just end up rearranging deck chairs and you wouldn't actually... Um, be be improving. So in terms of, yeah, there, there are avenues for the Canucks to clear cap space, but it, again, it's, you know, probably a, mo- a mode where if you're talking about one of those wingers, you're not going to get a lot of value back. You'd be giving those guys, giving those guys up probably for close to free. And at that point, it's about, you better have a great idea for how you're going to immediately allocate that cap space. Because if you don't have great uh great options in mind for contracts that actually make sense um you know whether it's on the trade market or free agency then then what's the point yeah i know it's a fair question right i mean they they find themselves in a situation in order to take two steps forward on the cap situation they're going to need to take a step back elsewhere either depth within the organization less likely on your current roster but yeah it's going to have that that same type of net effect and you know this is uh, this is what we knew, right? There's no easy solutions to clear cap space. It's all going to come with a level of pain. Let's get to uh, Dixon Wood. Hey, Harm, love your stuff. My question is, who should the Canucks realistically target this offseason in free agency? Obviously, can't be very high profile considering their cap situation. Yeah, so right off the bat, I think, um, you know, when Jansen and I sort of came up with our lists for free agency in terms of whether it's a third line center or adding to the blue line, I think, Right, right off the bat, bat uh, Pew Suter from Detroit. He's a player that can be a legit top nine center, solid penalty killer. He's only 27, so he's on the younger side. And because he's not the biggest guy, I think he's like five foot ten. Um, he's probably going to co- come in at a mod- modest price. And sure, do you love the idea of adding, you know, an undersized um, centerman? No, but that's that's why he'd be cheap, right? The Canucks, no matter who they target, there's going to be a flaw in the guy's profile. And if you're still finding a way to add a guy um, who can can legit add middle six caliber offense, is solid defensively, will help on the penalty kill, is a right shot, is still pretty young and um, could be available at uh, you know a, a shorter term deal at a very reasonable cap hit potentially. Like that's the sort of name that makes uh, makes sense. Uh, you look at uh, David Camp out of uh, Toronto. Um, pure defensive option, right? Limited offensively, but this is a guy who eats up a ton of uh, five and five defensive zone starts, led the Leafs in penalty kill time. And obviously Toronto's penalty kill has been very good the last couple of seasons. Um, he played tougher than league average matchups at five on five. So this is the sort of centerman who you can look at and go legitimately look at and go, he can eat up tougher matchups, which could free up a guy like a JT Miller to, deploy him in a more offensive situation and, and, and squeeze more out of him even. Um, really, really strong defensive res- results and metrics. Um, you know, that could make sense depending on the depending on the price. And when you get to defensemen, Sounds honestly. Sounds like Jason Dickinson when they got him from Dallas. I mean, true, but with with Camp, I mean, he's he's got more of a of a track record here. And I don't think that, you know, you're you're, you're at least hoping that his contract wouldn't be um, as deep as you know what Dickinson's um, Dickinson's was, and, and honestly, like you know, this is 
you know, some of these guys pan out, some of some of them don't. I mean, that that's part of the risk in sort of dipping into the free agent market. But Kempf has been legitimately good on a on a real contender the last uh, the last two years and watching him play. Um, you know, there's legit sort of merit to him. Uh, I think when you get to the defenseman, I think Luke Shen still makes sense on the right <laughs> side, especially if you're talking about like uncertainty around Bear. Um, you know, there's a point where when the Canucks dealt him at the deadline, I was looking at the way that he was, you know, starting to slow down a little bit the last couple of months of the season. And I was like, okay, like at 33, you know, am I a little bit nervous about the idea of bringing him back? But no, I mean, he was fantastic for the Leafs down the stretch. Uh, was a great safety net for Morgan Riley, and um, and, and again, uh, I would not mind at the right price bringing him back. Uh, uh, Carson Soucy uh, from Seattle plays both can play both left shot who can play both sides, meaning he could also be the sort of player that caddies alongside Quinn Hughes. Um, six foot five, defensively oriented, kills penalties, and you know wouldn't break the bank in terms of cost probably. Um, you know those are the names that sort of come to mind in. Um, you know, in free agency as potential targets if the Canucks can sort of clear cap space. And, you know, the worry you just have, even with these guys, is because it's a weaker class, you know, you expect those guys that I mentioned in a normal market to to be priced reasonably. But I don't know, will those guys be priced reasonably? Um, you know, the, you could still see a, see a scenario where you know, the market runs up on these guys and you're, you know, paying modest prices, but they may still end up being more than those guys are, are, are worth. So that's just something that Canucks sort of have to be mindful of in this mindful of in, in this whole process. Yeah. And, you know, for me, I just see the Canucks and, and again, previous management team having to overpay or overturn for marginal players just because that's what you need to get them here. Um, but uh, certainly this management group hasn't necessarily shown that with their moves in the last year, like even um, uh, the Mikheyev deal, right? In, in terms of the number, uh, wasn't necessarily out of line for what he would have gotten given his production the previous year. Even a guy like Curtis Lazar wasn't a ridiculous number, um, you know, I, for a million a year, even though they had to add the extra year, that's not significant. That's not difficult to move. So you just, you, you hope that this group can stay disciplined uh, as they go about their business on the free agent side, even if they are able to clear a little bit of cap space, you don't want that wasted. From Amrit Randawa, how likely is it that Miller is traded by July 1st? Insiders report it is a serious option for the Canucks, but their win-now mindset suggests otherwise, a move that would also help with their cap situation. What do you think? I mean, we've, we've heard Miller's name since heavily during last year's trade deadline. They haven't taken it off the table now. When I asked uh, Patrick Alvin about it at the end of the season availability. You know, he, he said that, you know, it would t- essentially that it would take a lot, but that he wasn't going to take his name out of the mix. Uh, what do you think? I'd be surprised, um, mostly because the Canucks are, are as Amrit mentioned, they're in a win now mode, right? They're, yeah, for like, sure. I, I mean, when you go out and you trade for Philip Peronik, and you also, the previous offseason, sign Mikheyev, extend Miller, like make all these decisions, don't prioritize adding future assets really at all. You're, you know, outside of Ratsu and the Horvat deal, you're clearly in, in a scenario where short-term results matter, making the playoffs next season matters. And if you're in that mode, Miller's a, a point per game centerman. How do you replace that guy, right? And because of that, I... I, I just don't know that the Canucks would be willing to, to part from unless a team was willing to really, really overpay, f- overpay for him. I mean, you know, could that be possible in, in a year where there aren't impact guys on the open market? Maybe, but 
I still think it's unlikely. Miller would, would don't get me wrong. Miller would have significant, you know, trade value, especially because he bounced back in the second half. But teams are are still generally going to be, you know, mindful of you know the contract seven years at at eight million per. And um, I I just don't think that a team is going to step up enough to where the Canucks will be like, all right, despite our win now incentives, we're going to be okay to give up um give up on this guy and create a huge hole down the middle when they're already looking for another top nine centerman um so uh, unless there's a deal and, and this is you know part of the rhetoric that uh or, or the narrative that came out around the time of the deadline when these rumors were surfacing which is if you're dealing miller i'd imagine the canucks would need would would be insistent on having um a, a, a player with a with top nine center upside Sort of coming back, whether it's in the deal or if they use those assets and spin it off to um, acquire that type of player, it just feels like, um, for me anyway, it, it's you know it's not outside of the realm of possibility. But I'm not banking on uh, on him being traded uh, before July first. Yeah, it certainly won't be simple. We saw how complicated it got with Pittsburgh and what they were trying to do at the deadline. I don't think it's going to get any easier now because, to your point, they're going to want somebody back one way or another, either in the deal or around the deal. Uh, real quick, before we let you go, or before we go, um, Game 5 of the NHL Stanley Cup Final is tomorrow. Uh, we've got the NBA Final tonight. I think the uh, the team from Miami is going to lose tonight and tomorrow night and lose both titles in the process. What do you think? Is, uh, has have the Panthers got a shot? Has, has Drancer's, team got, Drancer's second team got a shot of staying alive here? I don't think so. I mean, look, they might win win game five, but winning three in a row here, the big thing for me is looking at how banged up Kachuk looks. Man, like for sure. He did not look right in game four. His he might not even play in game five. He's a he's the engine of that team. And if he's not hundred percent, I don't think they have any shot personally. Um, so you know, that's um that's my thought there. I think Vegas will, you know, whether it's tomorrow or, you know, game six or or even if it goes seven, I, I think Golden Knights will win the cup. Can't argue with you. I think it's going to end sooner than later, and they'll get a chance to celebrate at home. Our good friend Gary Lawless will be doing backflips in a in a large suit. I'm sure he's going to have a cigar in the breast box while he announces that they've won the Stanley Cup. So, side note, by uh, the way, I mean, side note, by the way, are you are, yeah, yeah. are you proud of me? Because on the flight back yesterday, I uh, I was um, I was bored and I like listening to podcasts, so I listened to like an hour long Joe Burrow podcast. I'm no, consuming NFL content. No, you I lit- I, there's got to be a, is there a betting angle. No, no, not at all. I don't bet at all. Really? Yeah. All right. Again, this is that's that's me applauding. It's he's such a cool personality. Well done, my friend. Next year when we do a promo video and and Lucky Whitehead pulls at me, you'll know who he is. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> uh, I know we got a while to go before we get you to CFL football alone of any kind is a, is a win for for us. So. Um, all right, listen, if you're looking for other pod options, Jesse Granger, Mike Russo, and Rob Pizzo have the roundtable this week on the Athletic Hockey Show podcast. Also, Anaheim Ducks head coach Greg Cronin is Sean Gentili and Max Boltman's guest on the Athletic Hockey Show USA. And if you're looking to read some great content, get a new subscription to The Athletic for just $2 per month for 12 months when you visit theathletic.com slash vancast. Uh, not sure about next week, but we will be back the following week to make sure we get you a preview of the NHL draft. Uh, we'll make sure we get an expert on uh, with us. See, I mean, we know Harm's the ultimate expert, but there are some guys that just completely get into the weeds. We've got guys that completely get into the weeds on all of this, so we will make sure that uh, 
we let you know ahead of time who that's going to be and that we make sure it is a very good one. Until then, for harm, I'm Farhan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>